Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, how about this one for today? Share and share? <laughs> Alike. No, 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 share and share the Double Loop Podcast with your friends. Uh, yeah, just let other people know about the podcast. What about for you? Would you got something for me? I do. And, I, you know, I'm glad you did say that about sharing with other people. It is really great when people share the podcast with coworkers, sometimes family members and others. It's nice. I, it, it is really helpful and gets the word out there. Yeah. And so, if you're if you're in charge, like a supervisor or something, you know, it, it always helps to use your position of power to force your uh, your employees to listen. That, that's good, too. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're going to come back to that in a minute. <laughs> Ethics. All right. So, yeah, mine, again, I don't know why this popped into my head, but I'd buy that. For a dollar? And what movie would that be from, Eric? <laughs> that would be from one of the greatest and cheesiest movies ever made, The Running Man. Right. Well, I would like to contribute a dollar to Patreon. That is what I hope people would say. So I would buy a sponsorship for a dollar. That's what I'd like to hear. Now, a follow-up question. Uh, do you know what uh, video game uh, included that, uh, that phrase or something similar to it around the same time? I do not. I do not know. It was an old uh, NES or SNES game called Smash TV. Uh, hmm. Are you ever familiar with that one at all? Yeah, actually, you know, I, I have played it on a, like a retro platform. But Got it. Yeah, I, I didn't play it back in the day. Loved that game so much. Um, just more recollections of my wasted youth. <laughs> no, I'm sure that one person listening will find that interesting. <laughs> uh, we've played that forever. And this week, big thanks to Lisa, longtime friend of the show, and also to Eric, uh, both who uh, started contributing recently to the Double Loop Podcast. So thank you guys for going to patreon.com slash Double Loop Podcast and, uh, you know, dropping a couple bucks our way. So uh, you said you had something you wanted to come back to? Oh, yeah. You know, I was thinking about, and I know it's going to tie into what we're going to be talking about tonight. There was an article in this Journal of Forensic Identification that we're going to discuss uh, there was a letter to the editor in the beginning, yes, and it was a post on Sealpex as well uh, regarding perhaps some ethical thoughts about the Journal of Forensic Identification and uh, IRB. These are um, you know ethical review boards that are required or sometimes required for researchers to participate in. Where basically they send their research to this panel of ethics review board people and they agree that, you know, there's no ethics or, or potential harm to the human subjects or whatever. And it's a common thing that has to be done whenever you have human subjects and particularly universities require them, federal grants require them, but some places don't require them. So it sort of, sort of depends. And you were talking about f supervisors forcing people, and it <laughs> triggered this thought in my head because one of the, the things is if a supervisor forces a person, their employee, to participate in a study, you know, that wouldn't be typically something that would be appropriate. And IRBs, you know, will look at those kinds of things. I assume you, you read that letter and the um, posts on CLPAX? I did. Uh, you know, thinking back to the, some of the studies I've participated in and some of the papers I've read, you know, like all the big ones, um, 
the all the noblest studies had stuff like this. Uh, even the recent Palm research that I um, that uh, I was a participant in that Heidi Eldritch is working on getting published hopefully later on this year. Uh, all had those, but then you know going back in the time, I'm thinking back to the one of like one of the papers that Pat published, or maybe it was Casey um, about just the error rates in the classes that he was teaching. Yeah, that was Casey. Yeah, Casey. Um, and me. And I was one of the co-authors. <laughs> and I think I know what you're going to say here. That, 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 you know, those were, I mean, there was no way to trace things back to people, but, you know, those weren't uh, necessarily a, a formal, as far as I understand, any kind of formal thing when people took the class knowing that some of this data would be used for uh, – for, for published research. Well, and funny you should say that because I wouldn't say we got in trouble, but we definitely irritated a lot of people because we were using data from a class, even though it had all been anonymized and scrubbed, we were just reporting this is how many, you know, apparent erroneous identifications happened over, you know, X number of classes. And, and this was before we, it was such a, such a magical time because i mean the idea <laughs> of publishing well the idea of publishing anything on error rates was so controversial back then and people right. in the profession you know came up to us and said you know you're you're going to sink your career if you publish this you know this is ridiculous and you shouldn't and, but i mean you bring up a good point i mean obviously we there was no way to get consent from those individuals although i think there actually was a percentage of people who later the data they did give consent for their data but it wasn't until towards the end and it wasn't certainly all participants right but i mean the the when i read the letter i, I was a little irritated by the guy who wrote it in uh and i kind of defended Alan and Alan McRoberts, the editor of the journal, because he basically said, well, you know, yes, it's our policy and we should do a better job of asking if these studies have gone through an IRB. But he also mentioned, hey, it's not always required, and especially for some government agencies. They may not have the resources to do that. I mean, yes, universities and certain federal, uh, you know, it's definitely required, but I, I know that, you know, agencies I have worked for, they didn't always require an IRB. They had their own internal group look at it and determine if it was appropriate research and sign off on it, usually a quality manager or quality assurance unit. And um, I mean, I I don't know if you have very strong thoughts on this, but I, I will tell you this. I friggin' hate IRBs. They are the bane of existence, and those people, <laughs> I, they, they seriously, I, I can't stand them. And I, I hate that you have to go through them when it's clear just because I, I've had to have studies where we were going to make bloody fingerprints. And, you know, a recent, one of the, my co-authors said, Hey, you got to do an IRB on this to make bloody fingerprints. My blood, my finger. Well, yeah, you got to do an IRB because it's a human subject leaving behind a fingerprint. Like this is this is retarded. This is absolutely stupid. Why do we have to go through this? Well, it's just the rules, and I can't stand bureaucratic rules. That Where that's no the answer, purpose. right? Right. Where the yeah. answer is just that's just the rules because you have to. Because I said so. Because because. Right. And and the other part of this that I cannot stand is I don't think and 
Boyd, who posted on CLPEX and, and the authors, you know, who discuss in the journal, didn't talk about the cost associated with this. You know what the average cost for just looking at the basic documents would be? How much? Average cost is $2,500 for an initial review. If you want continuing review, as you, you know, get it kicked back to you and have to do additional edits and additional submissions, $1,500. These are averages. And I, I looked at three or four universities and I've gone through this before and I was amazed that by the end of this, you're looking at four, five, six grand. I didn't have a hundred dollars to conduct most of my research, much less right. five thousand dollars to give to a group of people who don't know me, don't know my research, don't know anything about the past research I've conducted, but who are looking at this with an incentive, mind you, to kick it back to you with a denial so that you have to kick it back to them with improvements so that they get paid more off of this. I, it's, it's a, t- I, I cannot stand it. And universities are kind of in bed with these things because they require them. And it's, a, I, I can't stand these sort of bureaucratic rules that really don't improve anything. I can't think of a single fingerprint study that actually harmed anyone in any way when everyone I know participated and willingly signed up to participate for them. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I, I, I can see the theory behind the, the usefulness of them. In oh, sure. General. Pharmaceutical studies and right. uh, human patient testing and clinical trials and testing, you know, people for psychology, you know, psychology and other totally and, get those sorts of things. And it, it seems like it's one of those things that has swung way back the other way from where it was before, where you know, you'd have just people just I mean, well, the uh, the Gila blood cell line is a, is a great example Um the the first cancer cell line that was um that was maintained in vitro um mm. was was obtained from a a poor black woman that died of i believe cervical cancer i'd have to it's been a while since i read that and uh do you have you, have you heard of the gila uh cell no line? I, this is all no keep going this is all really really interesting her name is henrietta lax uh, she died of cancer in 1951 and her cells from um her it was cervical cancer from her uh, tumor are still alive today and are used all over the world there is you know there was questions because if this was again early 50s they just took a sample they you know did some tests and they got it to actually grow in culture uh, she later died but uh, the family i think went, went years without knowing that this was that this had happened. Uh, she was never notified that you know her cells were going to be used in this way. So there, there's, there's a, there's an ethical thing here of of you know what is the the right of the patient and the the family um, if you know these cells have been sold for decades for a profit for a you know drug company. You know what what compensation is the family entitled to from these profits? versus the the good to society that this research has done on these cell lines. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. working uh, at the cancer lab right uh, when I was in college and right after that. This is one of the cell lines we did uh, experiments with. So, Oh, interesting. Um, again, now, have we maybe gone overboard on uh, yes. requiring <laughs> these review yes. boards? On, yes. On, you know, Glenn just – pricking himself and putting some of his own blood, you know, as the author and experimenter. (laughs) (laughs) But, but that's, that's the problem. It now has become the, whenever a human subject is used, you must 
pay $2,500 right. for a, a clear and obvious answer. No, this doesn't have any issues. It's, it, 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 oh, it frustrates me to no end. Um, the other thing too, and I'm probably going to post on CLPEX because I think Boyd, uh, Baumgartner, who posted this there, call, you know, attempted to call out, not by name, but called out ETL drawers research, in particular drawer and Charlton, why experts make errors, because they don't, you know, they use human subjects, they did cognitive psychology experiments. And, you know, they, they had individuals that didn't know they're participating in the experiment, but right. that's not exactly true. In both their experiments where their participants didn't know they were participating in experiment, they had consented to participating in research. They just didn't know when or where or what it was going to be. They just Got knew it. it would be at a time later. In fact, when we had Dave Charlton on, he talked about that when we had him on the podcast. And they've been very clear about that. So they actually did get consent. They may not have gone through an IRB. And then moreover, they've done everything beyond above and beyond to protect the individuals who participated in that particular study uh, yeah, so, I, I, mean, I, I recall that somewhere in the back of my head from reading the paper it's been a while since i read that paper though but yeah that that there was that consent just not knowing like you're saying when it was going to be actually occur Right. And I don't, ha I don't see any problem. If you consent to go, you know what? I trust, I trust it. You're going to do this. I don't even know these things. I've conducted experiments like that before where I had people involved and said, you're not going to really know all the details. I'll explain them all to you after. You're just going to have to trust me right. and participate. And, and th that was approved by management and quality managers and so forth. Because again, typically government labs, if not federally funded for the research, it's not required to get an IRB. It's always recommended, of course. And guess who's going to recommend that you get one? The <laughs> IRB. <laughs> but, right. you know, so I'm glad that Alan McRoberts doesn't necessarily enforce this. If you have a human subject, you must put this in your paper that you had IRB approval or we won't publish. I'm glad he doesn't actually enforce that because I right. think there would be a, a, a number of studies that would not have been published. But consent was obtained beforehand. And moreover, the thing that I actually think is most important, the people conducting the research are concerned about their subjects. They are – they use common sense. They do what they can to protect their human subjects and their identities. They anonymize their data. That's what matters. Right. That to me is the most important thing, not some group of five people who don't know anything about the subject, the domain or anything, who simply look at a design and go – well, you should probably think about this or maybe do this or I don't know if this is good enough. Pay us $1,500 more on top of the 2500 and then we'll sign off on this. Screw you. You know, in, in Alan's response, what's, what's clear is that he is aware of this and is looking for this in papers um, and is, you know, using uh, as the editor his judgment in, um, in, in looking for when this type of uh yeah when when this is a concern for different research uh, so yeah, i agree and again i most of this stuff with fingerprints especially when it's anonymized and pooled together really do look i mean <laughs> there are many experiments i've been done with fingerprint examiners who i would want to know the identity of those examiners and unfortunately right. they have not been revealed 
when two people in the black box or one person, sorry, one person in the black box study makes two erroneous IDs in the same experiment, I wish I knew who that person was. Right. But it's never been revealed because right. they've done a good job of concealing that data as appropriate for well, the experimenters. And and in that study in particular, even the person who made those two errors doesn't know who he or she is. Uh because Yeah, true. Uh that that was never released. I I, I mean I I was a participant. Hell, it could have been me. I, there's there's no <laughs> way for me to know. Um but it it probably was. Actually. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um but uh you know, there's other studies where the participants get to review their their results and see how they did. Yeah. And while most people would want to know that, the people that made mistakes, you know, that that may affect them, you know, psychologically, but um that's for at least for the black box paper and specifically without all that ever being revealed, then yeah, the, it's you just gave your answers and you've no idea how you did. So, well, but I mean, you bring up a good point here. So, how is an IRB going to look at that? Are they going to want to know the psychological effects of knowing and you know that you made an error? Yeah. And how is how am I as a researcher going to be able to handle that? How do I predict how someone's going to react to know? So. In the one event, I, I, I always did want to reveal the results to the participant so that if they made an error, they would know and they could look and potentially learn something from it. Yeah. That was always my approach. But I don't know what psychological effect that's going to have on that person. I, I, who, who can predict that? And so what is an IRB going to tell me other than, well, possibly <laughs> you shouldn't do that you shouldn't reveal that information but to me that was always one of the benefits of participating in one of my studies is that you could use it as potentially a training or learning moment yeah and who knows maybe that is why uh noblest you know studies didn't release that information back to the participants is because the rb suggested that this was an issue and not to do it uh, yeah i don't know but so. and, and it's, it's it's an interesting point. I know we got off on a little tangent here to begin with. <laughs> it's but a good I, tangent, though. Yeah, it just it really annoyed me to to see that letter. And of course, guess who wrote it? Someone who sits on an IRB. What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, we see you. I we see you. We we see your motivation here. I'm I'm going to choose to uh, to believe the best of people that. That he he does have a concern and wants um, to be more involved for uh, good non financial reasons. That is possible. So, but I am also glad that, that Alan responded in the way that he did. All right. So, Glenn, a, a, a quick uh, aside before we move into our main topic, and this will this will be an episode about volume sixty nine, number one of the JFI. I guess since we we already spent some time talking about the article in the front before we get to the article in the back. Um, I was, I've been doing some plinking around on YouTube and, and came up with a, 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 a thought. If you go to youtube.com slash Ray Forensics, uh, you will find there songs to compare fingerprints by. Uh, I've put together a YouTube playlist. Wow. <laughs> wow. Eric, two episodes in a row. Genius idea. Hey, hey, I'm on a roll here. So it starts with Leonard Cohen's song entitled Fingerprints. 
but then uh, goes into a variety of different uh, things from the police wrapped around your finger, the Rolling Stones under my thumb, um, you know, all fingerprint related, but to then also some crime related stuff, uh, talking head, psycho killer. Um, let's see the clash. I fought the law, um, to, uh, the transformers theme song, the touch by Stan Bush song by finger 11. Um, well known. So <laughs> you know what song I'm talking about. Don't pretend you don't know Stan Bush. <laughs> Um, to then other songs that were inspired by uh, different crimes of the past. So if if uh, you listener out there have any other songs that uh, come to mind uh, besides the 40 or so that I, I came across, check out the list. Uh, if I'm missing something, throw it on there. It doesn't have to be too wrapped up. Again, like I said, Stuck in a Loop by Devo, just because Loop um, – and then a couple of the Who songs from the CSI shows, just tangentially related to forensics or fingerprints. Uh, but uh, if it, it, it'll be a, a heady mix of genres for sure. Um, so <laughs> I, I hope the listeners get some, uh, some laughs out, out of just putting that mix on shuffle. Is, is this something that they could get through Spotify or through YouTube too? Right now it's on YouTube. I can try to put it in on Spotify. Um, I think you can put like playlists on Spotify, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, I'd have to. I think I have an account. My one of my my for one of my kids has an account on Spotify. I'll I'll check that out too. But we'll uh, figure it out. Uh, for right now, YouTube is is uh, you know pretty accessible out there, and uh, that's a way to start. Any any songs that jump into your head right away? No, doing? man, you you covered a bunch of them, but I'm terrible at thinking of song names. In like off the, the top of your of head, moment. yeah, yeah. Well, if something comes to you, because you, but you are good at you know a couple of days later when some obscure thing will just pop into your head and you'll go, oh, uh, this is the one that should be on there. Um, <laughs> just send me a text and I'll I'll add it to the list. Um, I can't get under my thumb now out of my head. I I love that song. <laughs> I love that song. Well, before we get into the main topic, let me just uh, give a shout out to our sponsor this week. And that's Go Evidence Forensic Laboratories. They're a full-service independent forensic lab specializing in the development of latent fingerprint evidence. And they serve just about anybody, well, really, anybody that needs any kind of latent print processing uh, from if you're the cops to uh, the defense, uh, anyone in between. Uh, they can help you out by processing, developing latent prints on evidence. They're committed to the higher standards of excellence, and they have the most advanced technology in the industry, and they're ready to work with you on any criminal or civil investigation. They really specialize in vacuum metal deposition, and they can process cold case evidence with VMD. So if you have some gun or some bullet casing or bullet that's um, been around for years, it was never able to get fingerprints on it 10, 20 years ago, they might be able to help out with this technology that your agency might not have available. Uh, they do sales, service, training. Brian and Scott are the ones to talk to. They're passionate about the technology and enjoy talking about how it can help you. Standard turnaround times are usually about two weeks. Consultations are free. Go to goevidence.com. All right, so Glenn, we are closing in quickly here on episode 200 of the Double Loop Podcast. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> it really is. Um, I remember when we got to like 50, that was amazing. But but 200, uh, it's it's been a it's been a great ride. 
So for all of those longtime listeners and new time people have joined us uh, to to our little family here, um, if you guys, what we're looking for is people to call in. We've got a phone number here uh, that it's on Google Voice, so no one's going to answer. You're just going to call and, and leave a voicemail. Uh, but we'd like people to call in and just give a, a quick little thing of, you know, hey guys, been listening for this long, I uh, really enjoyed this episode, or I love it when Eric says this or Glenn says this. Or you suck. <laughs> we're probably we're probably not going to save those. I might delete those, but that's... Oh, no, you you got to play those. You've got to play them. <laughs> sure, sure. If nothing else, to amuse Glenn, because he, he loves that kind of stuff. I do. <laughs> But um, we'd really appreciate anyone that wants to call in into our, our phone number, and it's 602-935-6425. Call in to say, just say congrats, just say, you know, hey, I love listening when I'm driving or when I'm running, or um, you, you guys help me out with the trial or, you know, anything nice uh, that you want to say, um, or, or, or not, not. not nice, that's fine too. Um, yeah, we're, we don't want to bias you into what kind of message to get, <laughs> to give us. Uh, so again, 602-935-6425. Uh, and then uh, after we get in a few, hopefully on our 200th episode, we'll, we'll pepper some of those in uh, in throughout the episode. Is Maybe that's a good episode to kind of go back, Glenn, and, and, uh, and look back at some of the greatest hits or some, something like that uh, or, or, you know, remember the, this topic or that topic or, or just, just a look back at five plus years of uh, the double podcast. Maybe we can vote for like best dad joke, best guest, best <laughs> interview, best uncomfortable moment. If, if any of those, um, you know, come to mind for you when you call in uh, to to the phone number. Mention that, and uh, we'll we'll start tallying things up if uh, if if we start to see a trend. <laughs> we'll also take messages through Twitter at Double Loop Pod. Uh, you can you know say, "Hey, this is you know for episode two hundred." Type something out, and we'll just read those on the air. Uh, if you don't want to, you know, hear your own voice. Uh, no, that'd be great, and and uh, yeah, hit us up with that phone number or at Double Loop Pod on Twitter, and uh, we'll just uh, make episode 200 a little mini celebration of uh, of all of our topics over the past five years. All right, so let's get to the main course here. Uh, we will be discussing from the same journal. We are discussing a new article that came out, and it's a, a work from, well, Cedric Newman, but it's actually his graduate students that... Uh, who uh, put this together. And we talked a little bit about them and some of their work before in past episodes, but Madeline Odemore and Jesse Hendricks with Cedric Newman. And they published an article called Review of Several False Positive Error Rate Estimates for Latent Fingerprint Examination Proposed Based on the 2014 Miami-Dade Police Department Study. And this is in the Journal of Forensic Identification that just came out. That's 2019. And that's uh, 69 and uh, number one, right. And they they issued this research article that dealt with investigating the Miami-Dade error rate, which we know was rather high. In fact, it was reported around 1 in 24 false positives for different source trials. And there have been a couple of people who have 
looked at that number and said 1 in 24 is pretty high. In fact, even PCAST, when they use their confidence intervals, put it as high as 1 in 18. So you're dealing with a very high error rate compared to other studies that are closer to, let's say, between 1 in 500 and 1 in 1,000 for a false positive error rate. So the Miami-Dade study being at 1 in 24 is really high. Now, one of the differences about the Miami-Dade study is that Unlike the other study designs where you have a single latent and a single known print, the Miami-Dade study has a one latent print compared to three individuals, 10 print cards, so 30 exemplar prints, which means that there is a good opportunity for a clerical error. And while the Miami-Dade authors acknowledge that there could have been clerical errors involved here, they basically said, but we can't tell. I and mean, we don't know if it's a clerical error or an erroneous ID. So we're just reporting the data. All we're doing is reporting the data and letting the reader interpret what that meant. Well, uh, the we'll call it the Newman Group. The Newman Group looking at this said, hey, you know, we're not quite sure that this fits. It could be clerical errors, yes. But the thing that we notice when we run our, our data or our um, our investigation and looking at the data, they said that there's clearly a different error rate when the source was present, when in fact the source was there, versus when the source was not present. In other words, if the source was not present at all in any of the three cards, there's no way it's a clerical error. It has to be erroneous ID. If the person is present and the individual writes down under the right subject with the wrong finger number, or even a different subject, but maybe the right finger number, right, they right. could have made a clerical error. We don't know. We, have, we just have no way of knowing. And so the fact that they made many, many more errors when the subject was present than when they were not seems to suggest that, of course, there were probably some clerical errors in there. But again, the Newman group can't not necessarily differentiate that either. So what they decided to do, which is a very elegant solution, is say there are two error rates here. When the source is present, it's about one in a hundred. When the source is not present, it's closer to one in a thousand. And that, I think, is a really elegant way to look at the Miami-Dade data. And then they run a bunch of simulations and do a bunch of statistics on it and... and uh, mm. Uh, what's a good way to describe that? They essentially create a model for the estimation of the error rate in that and find that their simulation of the error rate and their proposed approach is a better fit than the Miami-Dade approach. Does that make sense? Is that a decent summary? Yeah, so essentially they were like, okay, if if this is the error rate, essentially 3% is what was in the initial Miami-Dade report, then let's just take um the number of participants that were in the study make them just like little computer robots and put this exact same number of comparisons through them and they all have just to even everything out they all have this three percent chance of making an error and just putting in the numbers of the results of the study let's it's basically checking your work, you know, back in, back in, in math class in junior high. And, uh, so they, they ran it through and just to see, okay, how, you know, how many errors do we have in all these buckets? In the study, there were 42 erroneous identifications, 35 of which were in trials where the correct source was actually there. So. Right. And seven, with which it, with, they were not. Were not. So then the question is, well, there was basically 50, 50 chance of it being 
a same source trial or a different source trial. So we would really expect them to be about the same number of erroneous IDs in between the two, but there's really five times more in the ones where the correct source was already there. So is, you know, what's going on there is, is it really just that people in their own hands have another finger that looks really similar to the finger that was being tested? Or is it just that the person wrote down the wrong finger number on the piece of paper? Which, hey, you know, give an interject real fast. Yeah. In that very study that you referenced earlier in the podcast, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, you know, the Wertheim study uh, right. that Casey and I did. One of the things we noticed in that data was that people made clerical errors, what we deem to be clerical errors, about one in a hundred times. And it was really consistent. I mean, it was crazy consistent. It yeah. didn't matter the difficulty, the latent, didn't matter anything that it was a really consistent error rate, one in a hundred. And over the years, I've, I've kind of kept an eye on that error rate. And I have noticed it actually showing up in my own casework. I make about one in a hundred clerical errors. <laughs> Uh, I've noticed it when I was teaching comparison classes. I would, at the very beginning of class, estimate based on how many people were present, how many comparisons we're going to do, the expected number of clerical errors by Friday afternoon, and I would be right 95% <laughs> of the time. It was crazy. It's Nerd. a really ro- Nerd. No, but uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> very true. But it's a very robust error rate, I, I believe. And right. so when I, when I saw them parse those two out and then they essentially separated out a clerical error rate, guess what it was? Approximately one in a hundred. I, I really do think that that is the clerical error rate. So this, kind of, this makes sense is in that if you go back through, take in the answer of which was originally 3% that you come out with the study and plug that back in and basically rerun the study with computers as the participants with that set Doing error simulations. rate. Then, and you do it a bunch of times to get like an average. Then if what that happened here is that they came out with a different error rate than what they had put in. So just like if you go back and check your work, you're like, okay, X equals 2.5. And you go back to the original problem, plug in X at 2.5. You come out with the wrong number, then something's wrong. And that's what happened. Something was wrong. They didn't come out with the, with the same 3% at the end. So they went back through and accounted for that, started plugging in different numbers to see what best fit the data that was in the study. And it was a very complex study with all of these different issues with the three cards and the, and the palms and all this. But uh, yeah, essentially, they came out with if the person is present in the of the three people that are being presented, risk of error is about one in a hundred. Um, not saying that erroneous identification isn't possible there, but most of them seem to be attributable to clerical errors. Um, and then if if the person isn't present in the sample of the three people being presented, then that's the error rate of one in a thousand, which you know we've seen before in other other studies. Uh, right. So it, 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 it matches very much closely with what else has been published out there. And it starts to make a whole lot more sense than the 3% that was originally uh, written about. Yeah, and it's a very elegant solution. That's what I like about it. It's something that's pretty easy to understand. You can explain that essentially there are two error rates for that study. That's different than the other studies. But I think 
that will help. I really think that this article will help examiners with that kind of testimony when the one in 18 comes up, which one in 18 is what they'll be, you know, what will be thrown at them from PCAST. And it's now a little easier to correct that and go, no, no, based on, you know, these statisticians that reviewed those data and published in JFI. You know, they were able to demonstrate, in fact, that there are two error rates in that one when the person was present, one when they weren't. Here's what those two error rates are. And I think that's actually very, very helpful and will help examiners with that testimony, which frankly was is, is and was kind of challenging to deal with such a high error rate. Absolutely. My feeling is it wasn't happening very frequently out there with examiners being presented with the one in 18. But um, it it had started to creep up here and there, and uh, thankfully this is now out as an assist to examiners that are on the stand and uh, and facing that number. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. An assist, indeed. <laughs> yeah, and so after the article, this was this was actually another thing that Cedric does, and I, I always love his approach to forensic science because he he does a good job of trying to involve people in the discussion as opposed to, here's what we think, screw you, we don't care. Now, he, he does a good job of trying to... <laughs> Wait a minute, that does sound like Cedric, on. though. Uh, no, I'm well, kidding. I'm kidding, yeah, Cedric. No. I'm kidding. No, I know. Yeah, we'll get a nasty gram from him. No, but he he, do, he did a very good job of saying, hey, here's what we're publishing. Does anyone else want to comment on this? So he, he shared the copy of that article with a bunch of us ahead of time. And a number of people wrote the JFI as uh, writing letters. And I, I know I did. I'll talk about my letter in a little bit. But there were other folks such as, of course, Miami Dade responded, which I think was was great. And they had a lot of insight and revealed more of their data that wasn't previously available, made some clarifications. You know, I just had a thought when I was rereading all this today in preparation for our episode. The, the, uh, the, uh, the black box paper – has been especially in this paper here, but uh, in different publications, seems to be being called now the Ullery uh, study. Um, but the, oh. but this one's still being called the Miami Dade study. Why not the Pacheco study? You know, <laughs> that's a good point. Poor Igor. Exactly. Getting, uh, nah, that's, that's a good point. Well, maybe we'll, we'll maybe we'll try to start throwing that in every once in a while. So Pacheco study is the same as the Miami Dade study. So yeah, yeah, they they wrote in, and then also some. Um, people from the law side uh jay kohler from uh northwestern uh Car- sort of a guru on on error rates and forensic science uh carrie hall from uh, minnesota yeah good old carrie friend of the show exactly uh and uh brendan max uh from uh the uh cook county public defender's office in uh illinois basically chicago yeah so um well glenn you your your comments come first, so I guess we have to start with those. Um, oh, I okay, all right. I, I, I mean, didn't know if you want to co- cover the other ones, you, but I we've I talked about your comments here before. But um, uh, you know, essentially, you, you do a great job of 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 isolating the issue of what PCAST got wrong um, <laughs> <laughs> in. Um, in this first question of, are we measuring per source or per finger? So if you do a comparison and you say exclusion, 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 and they're all right, did you get it right three times? Did you get it right 30 times because of 10 fingers in each person? Or did you get it right 36 times because of 
three fingers and two palms on each person, or, or can you, you break the palm down to three zones? So then that would be whatever 19 times three is. It's like 1130. So I'm not going to do the math on that right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, that, that's one of the first questions that comes up and, and you essentially say, you know, you know, there's not necessarily a right answer in this, but it is important to be consistent and to understand that this is a consideration when uh, evaluating the uh, results from this paper. Yeah, the thing that I noticed and has always driven me crazy in the literature, and this originally came from critics uh, like Simon Cole initially, and even Jay Kohler, who when I when we first met, we argued about this, and we really he was very angry at me for calling him out on this. But then later we realized he he he, he switched his position on this and began to understand what why why we were a little upset about it. But this initial thing is we get penalized. We get penalized for clerical errors. So if you write down Jones number two, it was Jones number seven, any critic looking at a CTS test or any other kind of study will go, well, that's a false positive because you wrote down the wrong finger number. You said it was the source when it wasn't. So when it comes to false positives, they take a per finger approach. Right. Okay. It's, it's not just, oh, you got the right person. You just picked the wrong finger. It's like, no, no, right. no. That's an error. You got the wrong finger. We're going to count the, that one comparison to that one finger as the only test that you did for that person, and you got it wrong. Exactly. So then conversely, when it came around to the to the exclusion issues, and it really irritated me that PCAS themselves miscalculated my error rates for my studies <laughs> because they didn't give me credit for the 10 fingers be, or, and multiple people. So in some of the studies where someone wrote down an exclusion, in the study it clearly said this represents eight people that were excluded – so not just even one exclusion, it was eight exclusions right. and 10 fingers and two palms. So technically, you're looking at, in a study like that, 96 exclusions because you've excluded 80 fingers plus 16 palms. That's a 100 to 1 difference. You're counting it as one exclusion when a 100 many decisions happened. And if you're counting per finger per source for the false positives, then you have to be consistent for the exclusions. So it would drive me nuts that many of these well-known scholars and authors and critics would get – would would – Use one to their advantage and then use the other, you know, essentially also to, their advantage. also to their advantage to report the highest error rate when these two things were not being treated equally. It would drive me insane. And so Miami Day was very consistent in their approach. But this is why Cedric has this nice little elegant solution here. So you're absolutely right. I, I called PCAST out on that, but I also called out other authors like Habers who continue to do that kind of reporting. It's essentially, if you get it right, okay, if that counts for being right for the whole person, then if I identify the right person but just the wrong finger, then that should count as also a correct answer. But if you're going to count that as not the correct answer, that's fine too. But then when I correctly exclude it, count it as 12. Yeah, uh, for, it's, the, it's the inconsistency that bothers me. Right. Um, and, and I think I made the point in the paper that if in like a study like Miami Dade or one of the ones I did where they were doing searching, if you had presented that digitally to them and right. 10 fingers and they had to sequentially go through all 10 fingers and click no, 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 no. So then it was presented one to one, but all 10 fingers were presented in sequence and then you exclude that person on the 10th finger. That's 10 trials. So why not count that? 
as 10 exclusions exactly. when you just did 10 trials. Same latent, 10 different exemplar fingers. How is that not 10 trials when presented sequentially? Why is it any different when it's simply on a card all at once? I, it's the inconsistency that bothers me. And you, you also touch on uh, use, use of discovery rates. So instead of finding and looking at error rates, it's much more helpful to look at discovery rates. And uh, in here you, you have it's phrased perfectly. This is the discovery rate question is what really pertains to the courts because the courts are asking when you say identification – how often are you wrong in that? Because that is what is being brought to the court in identification. This is what we know is happening here. Um, so instead of the error rate, which is in different source trials, how many times did you say identification? How many times could a person say or will potentially say right. erroneous identification? But we're not bringing in a different source trial into court. Nobody knows that. The only thing that we know that we're bringing into court is the term identification. That's right. the subset that we need to be looking at. And then how often are we wrong in that subset? And then that eliminates the problem of whether or not to include inconclusives, which I think is a stupid question. Obviously, we should be including them. It's, <laughs> it's insane that even people that people are suggesting we don't. Um, even if you go look at the, they're talking about the medical journals here and medical journals. Yes. As opposed to what people have been are saying in these comments, yes, they do have inconclusive results. Yes, they do use them. And, uh, yes, they have systems to set up for it. It's not as I can't remember who, what section it, or which person responded that basically, Oh, medical trials don't have inconclusive results. Bullshit. They don't, <laughs> they do. And they properly account for them. Uh, granted, they're mainly looking at specificity and sense the sensitivity of the tests. Uh, and obviously the inconclusive results are used in those calculations. We're more looking at the false positive and false negative discovery rates where you wouldn't look, look at the inconclusives. But if you did want to look at the sensitivity and specificity of our tests, basically if someone touches a surface, how often can you identify that? Which is a strange thing. Thing for fingerprint examiner to really think about because that's like, well, that's like who cares? Like, I don't know. It depends on a whole lot of stuff. But like, why is that? Doesn't seem like an important question to latent print examiners. It's more if I say ID, how often am I wrong? That really matters. But if you want to look at those sensitivity specificity, like Carrie, and we'll get to Carrie's comments here in a little bit, then absolutely the inconclusive has to stay in. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> Uh, and then you finish off talking about how a lot of this is beyond your control. Um, PCAST rails against forensic scientists for not talking about error rates when we don't control what we say. Uh, this yeah, really they, is a question for that should be directed at the courts, at the lawyers, um, or at the structure of the system, maybe to allow scientific evidence to be presented. Uh, as more of a, a lecture instead of uh, a question and answer testimony. Well, Eric, yeah, you actually you 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 summed you summed that up nicely because it, it, I was very frustrated by this notion from PCAST that we're supposed to bring up error rates. Although you know, in even to be fair to PCAST and reviewing word by word, I can't find actual a statement where they said the examiner must 
testify to this and bring this up. Although it does clearly say in their summary that when talking about identification, the examiner should discuss blah, blah, or be prepared to discuss. Doesn't, you know, say who's supposed to bring that up, but it certainly implies that the examiner is supposed to be talking. As soon as you say, and what was your conclusion, you're supposed to say something along the lines of, I identified Jones as the, you know, the source of latent print one, you know, one dash one. However, I must caution the court that in other instances when examiners have been tested, they made errors as often as one in 306 times in one study and as high as one in 18 times in another study. That is ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous that my answer is going to give my conclusion and then immediately run into a whole bunch of error rate data that was not solicited by either attorney. Whoever recommended that clearly has no idea how, how testimony <laughs> works in the courtroom. It It is actually pretty ridiculous. Now, as I say in the article, I don't. I've got it in my report. Like that's actually in my report. I've got those numbers. Right. They can they can bring them up if they want to. No prosecutor wants to. No prosecutor is going to bring that up. And defense sometimes doesn't want to bring it up because they don't know this stuff. They don't want to introduce statistics. They don't know what kinds of questions. No one wants to look foolish in the courtroom and if they're not prepared for this subject. So I, I think you said it best. It's the attorneys who actually need to be prepared to discuss this stuff. And, of course, the witness, the examiner, better know this stuff and be able to discuss it. Yes. But it, it's not us to bring it up. It's really not. And and I invite the reader kind of to go screw themselves if they don't like that idea. <laughs> but I, I think I said politely, you know what? If you have a problem with this, take it up with the adversarial system. It's This is not on us. The adversarial system puts us in this position. If you don't like it. Take it up with them. It's not our fault. You know what? And and like I, I've been say, said before as well, if this is the standard, if this is what the uh, PCAST members, the law community wants from us to bring this stuff up, that's fine. Just going to say, start with DNA, start with the medical examiners. Make them do it first. We'll follow along. You know, DNA is the gold standard. When they testify to their result with their random match probability also require them to testify to an error rate, uh, get medical examiners to do the same thing. I'll gladly join in after they do. <laughs> lay, lay in the, uh, lay in the charge at their feet. I, I, I just don't see it ever happening, but you know, we'll see. So the next letter is from the authors of the, of the study, Igor Pacheco, Brian Churchi, and Stephanie Stoiloff. And uh, they, they do a brief little intro mentioning the study and um, the some of the other responses like from the OSAC Fritzsch subcommittee and from the Canadian group. And then most of their paper is um, a list of additional information and clarifications that weren't necessarily in their original paper, but they found uh, questions that were raised in um, the original article uh, that they basically just offer as, you know, he, here are the answers to those questions that um, the original authors of this paper, Osmore, Hendricks, and Newman, uh, here are the answers to some of the questions that they raise in the paper. Yeah, and and there's a little bit of conceit in there in that, yeah, we got to get this published in a journal, which they really do. I mean, I I know the NIJ report was published, but this now needs to really go in a journal that can 
review these statistics and and do a, a full peer review of this. Right, and and which would re- you know almost certainly require uh, you know edits to to the article uh, as is you know basically the the way that all scientific papers work is when you publish you know questions come back suggestions come back and then edits are made so uh, I, although they can't publish in JFI if they don't have their IRB statement there they they better better have it i seem to recall filling out uh, forms when i was a participant in this study so they should be well, fine they, but you're right could they have be consent to, forms but they have to get it approved by somebody anyway um so the the next letter is from uh from Jonathan J Kohler or J Kohler uh from Northwestern. His he starts off by um saying that he agrees in that the 35 right person wrong finger uh samples shouldn't be grouped in or lumped in with the seven just wrong person errors uh and he basically actually made this point in an article published a couple of years ago but points out that basically like the original authors you know do here that you know, the reader shouldn't be looking at the error rate in latent fingerprint comparisons there's a the layer the levels of difficulty also affect this you know different agency policies uh, there, there are a lot of other things that can affect the error rate uh, besides just is the uh, correct source in the set of three that you got to compare or not uh, there's a lot of other factors that can come in and play with this uh, he goes on to, uh, again, reiterate what he said before in that labs should have uh, methods to uh, test their examiners uh, through basically blind proficiency testing, basically putting in known source samples through casework so examiners don't know which sample they're working on is a same source comparison or not, and that those are what is really going to be the most valuable quote error rate that you know pertains to a lab or to a person rather than those from a study like this yeah and and that, and that's actually a, a very uh, the conversations i've had with him that that's a that's a really important thing to him right now is making sure that there are proper and adequate profici- proficiency tests for the field so and I, I i agree with him i support him in that that blind Absolutely. proficiency testing i think is a very useful kind of testing that we could get more uh, closer to more specific casework error rates estimated the the part that I, I kind of disagree with is is that he all then says that there is a a stark divide of the people that want to include error rates in court testimony and those that just never want it in at all, and that these two groups are diametrically opposed, and it's impossible to convince one of the other's viewpoint, and I I I just don't buy that. It seem, he seems to be suggesting that examiners are, are in a camp of never talk about error rates. And um, mm. that's not that's, – I, I just don't think that's accurate. That, you know, that may be the case that maybe prosecutors are in general not in favor of presenting those. But heck, I've, had, I've worked with prosecutors that, um, that want that brought up in direct and not on cross. So – it, it's it's not a universal thing with such stark lines as he's describing here. Sure. Okay. 
I, and yeah, I don't, I don't know where he, he gets that from other than, of course, in the past that was pretty true. I don't, I, I don't exactly know how things are today. And I don't know that examiners don't want to talk about it or are, you know, reluctant to. They may be uncomfortable or maybe not as familiar with the research or even competent to talk about it. But yeah, I, I, I take your point that that one remains to be seen. So the next one is from Carrie Hall, uh, which really speaks to me as, as it's a, such a emphasis from her letter on exclusions. Um, Glenn, why don't you summarize some of that? Yeah. In fact, I figured you probably would appreciate some of her points that absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, PCAST focused only on the false positive error rate and not on the false negative at all. Again, this, this bothers me because it shows PCAST's predilection towards bias a little bit towards, you know, the, you know, the false positive error rate and only giving a, an upper bound or a, a one-sided interval and all the kinds of yep. things that they did that really were, I hate to say it, just not, not very scientific, but almost pro-defense. I don't mind defense taking a pro-defense standpoint. I have a problem with a scientific <laughs> article or journal or, sorry, report purporting to be neutral, taking a very pro-defense strategy in communicating information right right and so the fact that they leave out the false negative error rates carrie goes in and talks about hey look when you look at the medical literature these two things are often tied together and they tell you something about the efficiency of the examination you know the effectiveness of this and when you throw in false positive false negative error rates specificity and sensitivity is really these four statistics tell you something about the efficiency of this test she even makes a note here that I think you'll appreciate. In medical contexts, it is unusual to allow for the inconclusive category, but not non-existent. And then she makes a citation to some uh, pub publications where, in fact, inconclusive is used. Right, right. It, it, it was it was a, a pretty seminal paper in uh, from 1990 that looked at expanding the uh, the binary model of a test being either positive or negative to having a middle range. And in, again, it depends. It varies widely depending on what uh, test you're using. But the diff different tests are designed for different things. Some are designed basically to – like I used to work at the blood bank, right? We Our tests were designed to fail positive because yeah. we didn't want any – uh, false negative results because a false negative result meant that somebody would get a bag of blood with HIV or Hep B or Hep C. Yeah. Um, so the test was designed to fail in that direction. And if you have a test that instead is designed to give you a positive and a negative result, one or the other, then you have this middle range that must be accounted for, where you can't, uh, you don't have a a determined. Uh, result like the 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 thing that you're testing for in the blood is at a level that doesn't indicate positive or negative. While something like a, a test for HIV in blood, it, it's it's you're just looking for you know is it negative, and everything is skewed in that direction. In latent prints, we're based much more skewed the other way, and that we fail negative or fail to the middle where we're very reluctant to say identification overall. Um, but we do have these now two things that we're reporting, 
and sometimes the information is insufficient in the middle to reach one side or the other. And there are definitely many, many, many medical or diagnostic tests that are designed in that same fashion. Uh, So it's just... It's, it's now just looking to account for things in that way instead of the traditional binary approach where a test is designed to be positive or negative or, or it's designed to just give one answer as opposed to giving an option of two answers. Well, they, I, th- I think the, the key thing here is that this might have worked in the, the, the old past where – it was identified or not identified, where you have a, a binary True. model. But under today's standards of identifications and exclusions, we have different criteria for an identification versus an exclusion. So it doesn't make sense to have this as a binary model at all, because an identification is not any, or the lack of identification does not mean you have sufficiency for an exclusion. Again, that's what you teach and preach. I think you can appreciate. Two Absolutely. different thresholds, two different strategies, two different criteria for these decisions. It can't be. So, of course, there should be a lack of specificity, lack of sensitivity equaling an inconclusive decision. It, it just – it simply doesn't make sense. The only time I see it ever making sense is when you have a lazy researcher who doesn't want to deal with an inconclusive in the middle. That, that to me is just lazy research <laughs> design. Well, and what she makes this point is that uh, it basically you can't have your cake and eat it too in this sense. So what, um, what she's saying is you can't have your cake and eat it too for the latent print examiners. You can't say that the false positive rate is only 0.15% by including the inconclusives and then say that the sensitivity is 89% by not including the inconclusives. Right. You need to be consistent as well here and from my perspective, always include the inconclusives because that it, it's it's dumb not to. I'll just put it bluntly like that. Where you have 0.15% false positive rate, 61% sensitivity. In that case, what you what you know from that, the 61% isn't like a oh geez, we really suck at this. It's when the test makers make a sample and then send it through the process. There's a 61% chance that the examiner in that study was going to come to an identification decision. Now, they don't screen for it at the beginning to only give you samples that are worth comparing. It could just be a, a smudge. I mean, it could be just no ridge detail at all, but it comes through. We can't compare that, but it still counts as a success in that we didn't make an error on it. But as uh, for the sensitivity, is something that we failed to detect. But that's fine. That, that's, that's how our, our system is designed. That's how our comparison model is designed. Uh, it, like the, I was saying with the HIV test that I used to do on blood, it didn't matter that the false positive rate was like 10%. It, what mattered in, the, in that test was that the false negative rate was like 0.0001%. Right. That that was the importance when that test was designed. For our tests, it's designed not to have a high sensitivity or specificity, but to have a very high positive predictive value. Oh, the other th- the other thing that she was saying here is so some people may be listening to all that and go, oh, "Well, maybe we should go back to the easier days when we just had a binary test, ID or no ID." Uh, however, I'm, I'm, I've, 
uh, Carrie's going to like this because we've talked about this before. I'm more and more siding with her on, on the importance of exclusions. There are lots of cases out there where the lack of the exclusion result being presented resulted in erroneous convictions. And she mentions a couple uh, here in her response as well. Uh, and so essentially, yes, when there is sufficient information to exclude, it is very important that we do so uh, to to uh, prevent uh, these miscarriages of justice that can happen from that perspective as well. All right. So the last letter came in from Brendan Max, uh, like I said, the uh, Cook County Public Defender's Office uh, in Chicago. And he essentially is kind of wishy-washy here. He, he He's not so sure. He, he sort of leaves it open that, well, maybe these are not necessarily clerical errors. Maybe some of these are, in fact, true positives. And that, you know, it's a, it's a more difficult study design because it mirrored casework because you have to do comparisons. So maybe it's not so fair to compare it to the other studies and the other error rates. Yeah, I... I yeah, but he also says that like he doesn't want to comment on this paper in particular because he's not familiar with the simulations that were being described. So mm-hmm. he doesn't want to comment on on their main conclusion that three percent is an overestimation. Which eh. oh, I just I, I took it to be that he wasn't sure that. But then yeah, see, so then he says that well, there there may be differences between the two papers that would explain this difference. Essentially, what he's getting at is that the authors, you know, Cedric Newman and his grad students, what they're saying is that this three percent error seems really high compared to the point one percent from the black box paper. And what he's getting at here is, well, you know, maybe there's reasons for that. Maybe it's not because of this. Uh, difference of having the same source there and its clerical errors maybe this was just a harder paper a harder study harder examples and he points to some some points that um uh, from the papers that may lead him to believe that the miami-dade study had just harder samples that would cause the uh, the higher error rates i looked at the number of inconclusive determinations basically he's just saying you know there's no way to tell so the, the main thrust of the main paper was that these models show that a more appropriate error rate was to have these two different ones, one in 100, one in 1,000. He's just sidestepping that whole thing as he's not familiar with the models enough to comment on that and then suggesting other reasons why the error rate might be different uh, and then and that these were all actual errors. I, I, didn't, I didn't really like his response as much um in not really fully considering what the uh, what the authors have presented here uh and and just kind of going back to other possible explanations instead of commenting on on the uh the models that were proposed here yeah and i think one of the things that he might have maybe not considered as strongly is that when you're doing comparison searches inconclusive can come up pretty quickly here because you know one single finger being smudged so it's it's, sometimes the exemplars have a huge impact on the number of inconclusives in these kinds of studies because you might have nine very clear fingers but just one you'd like to see a little bit more on that tip before you exclude because you're very conservative in your exclusions but if you have found the identification it you would have had your regular rate of you know sensitivity and and identifications so yes, the the 
the one-to-many comparison design is a more difficult approach and has different consequences. And it didn't seem like he necessarily considered those factors and just basically said, these are two different studies, apples and oranges. Maybe we shouldn't be comparing them at all. And I think in light of what the you know the folks from South Dakota did in this uh, in evaluating this information that the reader uh, in this case you know Brennan Max should should have considered that information more carefully instead instead of just it seems like he just dismissed it out of hand and just asked more questions like you know well we don't really know um, why examiners in the Miami Dade study uh, chose the uh, the right person with the wrong finger. Could have been the clerical error. Could have been something else. Instead of like, oh, hey, look, by actually plugging these numbers in and evaluating it in a more appropriate way, it really matches what else is out there. I don't know. That, that seems to be you know uh, fairly clear evidence to support the idea that uh, that there were clerical errors that happened in this study and that that explains this discrepancy between the error rates of whether the right person was in the uh, samples or not, as opposed to just saying, eh, no way to know. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I take your point. I mean, you're right. It, it didn't seem to – It. I, I think ultimately it was a you haven't convinced me right. position. So well, we kind of touched a little bit on the article itself and then spent most of the time talking about the responses to it. But uh, I really did like uh, all those responses, especially – um, the ones from uh, from you and Carrie. Uh, oh, well, thanks, I, Eric. I, well, and that's why I kind of took that one from you is is explaining your point instead of you remaking the point again. I was like, well, let me maybe have people hear it <laughs> your points from a different voice because you. I mean, these are, you've made these points before when we've talked about this paper with Della and with Cedric and with with other people in the past. Well, no, and you did a very good summary. Thank you. So, all right. Well, that's going to do it. Um, a uh, a couple announcements here. I'm I'm basically full up on my uh, class in uh, April in uh, in the Miami area for exclusionology and gyro and Photoshop. Um, there, I'm waiting to hear back on a couple of things. So there may be a spot or two. So just go ahead and email me if you're interested in that. Um, and then. Uh, and then uh, May 13th or the 15th, there'll be another uh, instance of that exclusionology class in Boise, Idaho, uh, or just outside Boise. And uh, look to rayforensics.com for more information on that. Uh, I still have to get the flyer up and some things finalized, but uh, it's it's good enough to go to, to, put, to, uh, to mention on the podcast now. Yeah, I'd like to tell listeners about two classes that are still open and looking for seats. The first is in July in the D.C. area, Dulles, and that's Advanced ACB Applications, and that's July 22 through the 26th. And then another one, uh, Advanced ACB Applications, in now in October, and this is in the oh, uh, south of Oakland area, east of the Bay Area in California, and that is... October 14th through the 18th uh, in, I think it's called Dublin, California. So go to Ron Smith and Associates if you're interested in either of those classes. All right. Well, Glenn, I'm going to be uh, starting a class, well, tomorrow for us as we're recording, but probably I'll be halfway done with it by the time everyone starts listening to this episode. 
I'm going to start training in face comparisons this week. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm I'm really excited about this. Uh, That's cool. Yeah, a new little wrinkle to my repertoire, uh, and I'm I'm really interested in in you know seeing the similarities and differences of what what to look for in in comparing faces. Obviously, you know sometimes a lot more difficult in that you don't have that same persistence in uh yeah the faces as you do on fingers because people get old they uh grow out their hair or dye their hair or you know else anyway all sorts of stuff can happen but uh no uh, very very excited to uh to start a little uh training on that um so can, uh, can you, i mention something oh absolutely yeah I'm, I'm actually really curious you know because look fingerprints is so ahead of the curve in these other disciplines yeah i've been hearing some fairly negative things about facial comparison and error rates and such i'll be really curious to get your perspective and i and i imagine that kind of will be a little difficult for you if you're sitting there going wow this is like fingerprints 30 years ago making these sorts of <laughs> statements without any data i'll be real curious to get your perspective on this i yeah i've been talking to some attorneys recently who have have nothing good to say about Facial recognition, uh, pat, you know, digital pattern comparison, some other stuff. And I, don't, I just, I don't know anything about it other than they're just now starting to do some of the error rate studies. And I don't know that they're doing that great. Well, um, I, the, the little that I know so far is, is I know that, uh, one of the big, well, it seems like a discussion right now is, is the, how to report the, support for common source but not a full id kind mm-hmm. of thing um and then so that that's at least one thing that that's being discussed a lot uh which is going to you know happen obviously a whole lot more with uh, in in that discipline depending on the quality of the image and and other factors any kind of error rate kind of thing i guess would have to be tied back to like a 10 print record if a 10 print record and a face comes in at the same time then that's basically your your you could use the the ten print card basically as your ground truth and kind of go from there. I, anyway, I, I'm I'm just I I don't know a whole lot right now, but hopefully by the end of the week I'll I'll be uh, you know neck deep uh, in everything and and starting to pick up on on what goes on. But uh, cool. yeah, no, I'd uh, it'd be cool to do like a debriefing at some point down the road after I kind of get into things and and start you know, seeing the differences and similarities between comparing faces and fingers. Cool. All right. All right. Well, follow us guys at double loop pod. Email us. If you have questions or comments, Eric at rayforensics.com, Glenn at elite forensic services.com. And, uh, give us a phone call 602-935-6425 and, uh, leave us a, a little voicemail. And you can also tweet that at us too, but the a voicemail or a tweet that we'll use on our episode 200. Uh, with that, um, the ideas expressed here are those of the speaker and not any agency we work for or clients we represent. And uh, I guess that's it. So we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.